Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to read the 13 verses of the chapter together. This is not the easiest section of the book that we're in, and we're kind of in the middle of what is a fairly um, difficult section, and we're getting through it, but when we come to chapter 8, there is some uh, lovely things about the Lord Jesus that we're going to discover again that... uh, We trust will be an encouragement to us. So let's read from verse number one. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount." But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbour, And every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now when we get into chapter 9, Um, He then begins to speak about things that we would be familiar with in the Old Testament, such as the tabernacle and what these signified um, in our New New Testament context. So we come to chapter 8, and the predominant or the dominant word that appears throughout this section, in fact, from chapter 7 right through to nearly the end of chapter 8, is the word covenant. In fact, I noted this that that word appears 17 times in the New Testament and 13 times that word appears in this section. So if the word is going to be spoken about at all in the New Testament, then it's in this section more than anywhere else. And we're introduced to this new covenant and there's a contrast with what's called the old covenant that we would associate with the Old Testament. So you come to verse number one, and this isn't a flow of thought. There's a flow of argument, if you like, or explanation that we've been been traveling through Hebrews and discovering. And we come to verse number one of chapter eight, and he says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. 
And what he's saying basically is that this is the main point rather than this is the summary of it. He's not saying we can take all that we've said and just sum it up in this one verse, but rather the idea is this. This is the big point. This is the main idea that I want to get across to you. This is the important point. And he's not referring to the past. He's actually, that word is in the present tense. So this is what he wants now to reveal to us in this chapter. And as he does that, he introduces us to the Lord Jesus again who's the central person in this whole book of Hebrews. And so we're back thinking about him, and we discover in verse number one, he says this, We have such an high priest who is set in the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now remember the big idea, the big context here in Hebrews, and if you've been coming these weeks, you'll be fed up with this, but it is the big idea to keep in our minds when we read this book, that he is exalting the Lord Jesus really in every chapter. And he's doing it by way of comparison and contrast. So he's saying to these people with the Jewish background primarily, he's saying to them, what you had was of God. But what you had was anticipating and was typical, was foreshadowing what exists now in the Lord Jesus, in his sacrifice, in his present ministry, in his person. He fulfills all that was pictured in the Old Testament. So don't hark back to that, because that was all anticipatory. That was all a shadow. That was all a type. That's not the reality. Christ is the reality, and he's far greater than all you left behind in terms of all the ceremony, all the sacrifices, all the things that were visual and appealed to the senses. All of that is inferior to Christ. Now, it didn't appear to be, because if you'd been a Jew, you'd have made your way up to the temple. It was an impressive building. There was priests in impressive clothes going about impressive ceremonies. It was a national thing. You were part of a very big structure of external religion. And you've walked away from that, and you've got nothing that's external. You can't see Christ. He's not in a big building. He's not got an army of people round about them. It's not a big national impressive system you're part of. You're now in the minority. And you're trusting someone you've never met, and you're serving someone who's not physically in front of you. And it's all by faith, and it's all spiritual. And when the pressure comes then the tendency is to go back to the safety and the familiarity of what you left behind. And so this letter was written to encourage these Christians to keep on going and to educate them about the sufficiency of Christ. He is more than sufficient for all your needs as a Christian to serve and live for, live for God. Excuse me. And he's spoken already about the fact that really at the core of that national system of religion was the priesthood. Because as individuals, they didn't have direct contact with God. They needed an intermediate, a mediator between God and them. And it was the priesthood. So they brought their sacrifices that were handled by priests. The high priest who represented the whole nation, he had the privilege of once a year in the Day of Atonement going right into the very presence of God as a representative of the people. And it was a big deal. But they couldn't go in. And so the priests were not only the mediators between God and the people, they were also the people who taught the people the law. And so eventually that went into the synagogue system that the Jewish people created, but it was the priests 
job to educate the people in the law. So the priests were really a major part of national life, and now they're gone. So who, for the Christian, is going to mediate between God and the Christian? Well, of course, it's Christ, our great high priest. And he's not going to serve in a tabernacle made with hands, we're going to see, but he's actually serving in the real thing, which the tabernacle is just a pale shadow of. He's in the reality, not the shadow. He's the great high priest. He isn't a failing uh, human priest who was uh, subject to sin and, and to failure like all the rest of us. He's absolutely perfect and we can go to him night and day and he'll minister on our behalf. And we're going to see something of that right now when you come to verse number one. He's going to emphasize this again. So he says, we have such a high priest. And we've learned something about him already. After the order of Melchizedek, the one who is eternal, no beginning of days nor end of life, the one whose priesthood was different from the Aaronic Levitical priesthood, because they had lots of priests who all died and the priestly service came to an end, but Christ continues forever, a priest, because he will never die. He will continually and always be there serving us in the very immediate throne room of heaven and that's what he's going to set out here he says this high priest is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens if you were a Jew you say where is he I can't see him I can't go to him no that's true where is he well the first thing that we notice if you read about priests in the old testament something different about our high priest first of all he's seated now, if you ever hear ministry in the tabernacle, which we don't hear so much nowadays, or the temple, which we just about, I don't think I've ever heard ministry on Ezekiel temple. I know John Stubbs used to speak on it quite a lot, but I never heard him. But um, these places have lots of furniture. But in the holy place and in the holiest of all, there wasn't any seats. Because if you were a priest or the high priest, the last thing you were thinking about doing is sitting down in that place. You would serve and you would come back out again. Because your service would never be finished. So you couldn't sit down. And here's a bit of homework. There was a high priest who sat and heard news about the death of his sons and then tipped over backwards and he died. And you can think about who that is. So he is sat and he sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He is so superior to all these other high priests because his sacrificial work is done. It's finished. And so he can sit. He has no more blood sacrifices to bring before God. He offered himself once. At the end of the age hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Never again will a blood sacrifice be offered to deal with sin or find acceptance with God because Christ's blood sacrifice, the shedding of his precious blood, has taken away sin and dealt with sin forever. So he can sit down, sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. One writer said this, he has taken his seat, and that is in the aorist tense grammar, which speaks of a completed action, an effective action, and it points to the finished work of our great high 
priest. What a contrast to what the Jews had left behind. Priests getting in and out every single day. Every day. The smoke from the altar going up continually, 24 hours a day. The, the fires of the altar never to go out. Constant sacrifices going up. Hebrews 10 verse 11 said that every priest standeth daily ministering and offering often the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. Put the comma where you will. He either offered one sacrifice for sins forever or he forever sat down. Wherever you want to put the comma. But the idea is just this. He is able to sit because his sacrificial work Blood sacrificial work is done. And he now officiates in a heavenly tabernacle. The right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So verse number two tells us a wee bit about that place where he is. So where is he? He's in the sanctuary. This, is, this seems all a wee bit surreal and a bit kind of detached from daily life. In this sense that when you're going about your daily business and things, you know, in your daily routine of life, I think it's somehow, it can be difficult to take your mind into a completely different type of context. That which is spiritual, heavenly, eternal. And realise that that's as real, it's probably more real actually than what is going on down here. The things that we touch and the things that we see and handle and so on. There is a reality that we can't see. But by faith we believe. And so the reality is this, that there is a sanctuary. And he is a minister of that sanctuary. It's real, he's there, raised, risen, ascended, sat down, and he's serving. He's not there passively. He's not offering blood sacrifices, but he's still serving in his priestly capacity. And that word minister comes from two Greek words. One means belonging to the people, and the other means to work. And to work on behalf of people is the idea behind the word minister there. And that word became used of public servants. And that's how Christ is in heaven. He is working on behalf of other people, us. He's serving us in the sanctuary. And that word sanctuary just means holy place. It's heaven itself. He's active. He's not passive. This is the true holiest of all. The immediate, real presence of Almighty God. Hebrews 9.24 says, Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are just figures of the true, but into heaven itself. So all that they were familiar with, tabernacle, temple, what he's about to tell us, listen, that wasn't the real thing. They were just like scale models which pointed us to the real thing. The real thing, we can learn about it by looking at the tabernacle and the temple, but they're not the real thing. Christ is in the real thing, the true tabernacle. That's what he says in verse number two, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. That word true just means genuine. It's a genuine. It's not meaning it's in contrast to that which was a representative. This is the genuine thing. It's not that that was false. It's just it wasn't the true thing. Heaven is the true thing. 
So then, what is he offering in verse number three today? So we have seen that he sat down, speaks of his finished work. We've seen that he serves in that sanctuary, which is the true immediate presence of Almighty God. It's not man-made at all. But what's he doing there? I mean, if his sacrificial work in terms of blood sacrifice is done, what else is there to do? Well, he says in verse number three, every high priest is ordained to offer two things, gifts and sacrifices, whereof it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. So the the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is not restricted to blood sacrifices. That was just one aspect of priestly service. There was another aspect of priestly service which Christ also does. And it's bloodless sacrifices. Now you can do your homework on this. Which would mean you can back into the Old Testament into the Levitical offerings. And if you go to the book of Leviticus and go to chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Just keep going through you'll discover that there were sacrifices prescribed for people in Israel that involved animals which had to be killed and blood had to be taken and had to be applied in a certain way. But there was other sacrifices prescribed that did not involve the death of an animal. Probably the most uh, prominent one would be the meal offering. And the meal offering was fine flour, and in Leviticus chapter 2, you have it all prescribed and you had fine flour, and you had oil and frankincense, and you had no leaven and no honey, and so forth, and they were to be, oh, there's a whole line of ministry in this, they had to be baked, and they were to be baked into little cakes in different ways, and there was to be an open pan and a closed thing, and all the rest of it, and that's all in Leviticus chapter 2. There were other gifts also that could be offered that did not require death. These were expressions of worship and appreciation of God that the offerer could bring. They were not to deal with sin or trespass. They were to positively adore and worship and express appreciation and thankfulness to God. And the priest would take these gifts and handle them as prescribed in the Old Testament so that they would be offered to God. For example, in Hebrews, um, yeah, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, Every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things to God that he may offer gifts and sacrifices. That's what we do. We don't take sacrifices to God to deal with our sin. As Christians, that has been dealt with once and for all. When you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, the full value and worth of Calvary deals with your sin and your sins past, present and future. So that if you die that very moment you accept the Lord Jesus, no matter how young you are, no matter how old, if you die the very moment you accept Christ as your saviour, then your sins are all dealt with. If you live for another 40 years then still the value and worth of Calvary that you come into the good of in that moment that you get saved means that you still have no sin to answer for when you die and you go and meet God. Your sins are all dealt with once and for all. They're not more dealt with after a period of time. They're just once 
and forever completely dealt with when you accept Christ as Saviour. Because the full value and worth of Calvary and of the blood sacrifice of Christ is applied to you, past, present and future. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You never will be subject to the judgment of God in relation to sin once you're saved. It's gone forever. But we live here upon earth and want to serve God and love God and appreciate God and Christ. And the more we learn about him, then we have still got things to sacrifice and offer to God. Not blood sacrifices. There's a once forever blood sacrifice. But there are bloodless sacrifices. Sacrifices of time. Sacrifices of money. Sacrifices of resources. Sacrifices of energy. Things we do. Things we say. In fact, when you come to the end of this book, it speaks about the sacrifice of praise. The fruit of our lips. But what happens then? How does God receive that? Okay, so... Um, when we come as a Bible class just before Christmas for our praise night. So we are singing praises to God. What happens to that? Are these just words that we enjoy? Or do they have a, a greater significance than that? They do. The Lord Jesus Christ is involved in heaven as our great high priest. And these are presented through him to the Father who appreciates us praising Christ and adoring God. And it brings pleasure to the heart of God in heaven. The significance of your daily prayers. When you pray for your family, when you pray for your friends, when you pray for your local assembly, when you pray for people at school or college or your neighbours, what happens to these prayers? Do they just kind of go up and disappear? No, they don't. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is actively involved as he, and we're going to see another occasion, the Spirit of God is also actively involved and these things are presented sacrificially to God. He's our great high priest. Hebrews 13 verse 15, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God, it says. By him, by Christ. So it's not just, you know, you know, sometimes you think that it is the, the spiritual condition that you're in that will determine the extent to which you're heard. That's not true. There are scriptures that teach us that we are regarding iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. But, you know, the truth of the matter is just this, that if we are living a life and we're confessing our sin and so forth, we, it's not just spiritual giants amongst us that somehow get priority before God. By him, by Christ, therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God, praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So in verse number three, Christ is still active. Not blood sacrifices, but perhaps this word gift would apply to the things that we offer in our lives. So in verse number four, 
He's just going to contrast this with earthly priests. And we've gone over some of this before, so we won't linger on it. But he says, if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, saying that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So he's just saying, look, just remember that Christ is doing something in heaven that he would not be doing in earth. So they might be saying, well, listen, you know, it'd be far better to have a high priest here on earth, like Aaron or Caiaphas or whoever it was. Far better than someone you can see. No, no. He says, listen, if he was here on earth, he couldn't do what he's presently doing in heaven. Why is that? Well, the one thing that would have helped, withheld him would be he wouldn't have qualified to be a priest and function in that earthly tabernacle because he wasn't of the tribe or born of Levi. Therefore, he would have been disqualified. No, he actually says, no, in verse number four, he says he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. God has a ceremonial law in the Old Testament that the Lord Jesus Christ wouldn't have actually qualified for. He wouldn't be a priest, the wrong tribe. He's ministering elsewhere in a better place, therefore a better priest. Look at verse 5. Again, just to go through this quite quickly, he's referring to these earthly priests. He said, they serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. Now that word example just means an outline or a suggestion. It's translated as figure in chapter 9. So he's saying these earthly priests are working something that was just an outline or it was just um, suggestive of the real thing in heaven. And then he says there were also a shadow. Now, Woost, Kenneth Woost, in his helpful expanded translation and, and dictionary, says that the word shadow means an imperfect portrayal or representation of a thing. Now, a shadow, this is another, I think this was Jim Flanagan said this, a shadow has no independent substance or independent existence. A shadow can't exist by itself. It's relating to something of substance that casts a shadow. So if you take the thing of substance away, there's no shadow. So what in the tabernacle was, was a shadow of what the true is in heaven. So it only exists as in relation to the thing that's true. You take the thing that's true away, then that doesn't exist. That's the idea. So the big idea is not the tabernacle. The big idea is not the temple. It's what that represented and was a shadow of. He's trying to show them that they're connected to the real thing. In fact, he goes on and says this, listen, don't you remember, he said, what happened to Moses in verse 5? He says, Moses was admonished of God when he's about to make the tabernacle. He says, make things, all things according to what? The pattern showed to thee in the mountain. You remember, he went up and um, he was given the law and he was given instruction about how to build this thing. He wasn't just, you know, we're getting something built behind us here and Mark has the plans and everything is done according to the plans, hopefully, and um, so on. It's not just that you just turn up and, you know, well, let's just do this or do that. There's a pattern, there's there's instruction. Well, God gave instruction to, to Moses. Make sure you build it like this. Why have you to build it like that, Moses? Because it's going to teach the people about what's in the heavens. It can't just be anything. That's why, by the way, studying the tabernacle does a value. Because you're not just learning about a, a building here on earth. You're through the building learning about the reality that is in heaven. And being instructed about that. And so he says, and that word pattern, it just means 
something that's a kind of impression that's left. Um, it was used, for example, in John 20, verse 25, when um, this verse, unless I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, that's the word tupos, T-U-P-O-S, from which we get the word type. And so you get this idea of imprint, which came to speak about something that was figurative. And then also, for example, in uh, Titus 2, verse 7, Titus was to be an example of good deeds. So he was to be something that could be copied, something that would teach them. And then it also began to be used in the Bible to speak about something in the future, something present that represented something in the future. So you get typology, which is another big Subject, Adam being a type of Jesus Christ in Romans 5 and verse 14. So come to verse 6 and you have that idea then about the, pra- the, the, the physical representing that which is in heaven. But then it says this about the Lord Jesus. He has a more excellent ministry. A more excellent ministry. Now, Wish says this, and I'm going to quote you this. He says, this is an important verse. It's a pivotal verse in the book of Hebrews. The book was written to prove the following proposition. The New Testament in Jesus' blood is superior to and takes the place of the Old Testament in animal blood. The writer has proved this to be true on the basis of logic and the Old Testament scriptures. Using the logical argument that a superior workman turns out a superior product, He has shown that Messiah, the founder of the New Covenant, is better than the founder of the Old Covenant, who were the prophets, angels, Moses, Joshua and Aaron. Therefore, the testament, the covenant he brought in, is superior and takes the place of theirs. We've seen that Christ is a better priest. We've seen he's seated, he's not standing. We've seen he's ministering in the true sanctuary, not that which was a shadow. He's obtained a more excellent ministry. And it says this in verse number six, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Why be satisfied with the shadow when you can have the substance? Why be satisfied with the old when you can have the new? This is what he's saying. And so now he's going to quote from the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 here. And these better promises were promises that are taken out of the book of Jeremiah chapter 31 and the writer to the Hebrews quotes them in this section from verse number 8 down. Verse 9 down. And so it says this in verse 8, For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What was the problem with the Old Testament? Was the law bad? No, it wasn't. It's good. Was there a problem with the law? No problem at all. Read the book of Galatians. Paul is quite clear in that. Nothing wrong with it. The problem lay in the people. And the fault was in the people. And the present tense means that God was continually finding fault in his ancient people who made big claims about keeping that covenant and the promises that they were going to put into practice. And they were so proud when they made the statement and they failed continually. 
They repeatedly rebelled against him like an unfaithful spouse, actually. And that's how they're described in the book of Jeremiah. And so there was no problem with the law itself, with the covenant promises and commitments of that old covenant. The primary problem lay in the failure of the people to keep it. One writer said it seemed so simple, so straightforward, but the depravity of the human heart made it so complicated. In fact, impossible. And the Lord decreed to replace that old covenant with the new. Paul said the same thing in the book of Romans chapter 7. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But then in chapter 8 he says this, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. There's the weak point. As sinners in the Old Testament were unable to keep God's holy law, it did not supply the change of heart or the enabling power of the Spirit of God within us to enable us to attain God's standard. It simply didn't. And as Paul explains in the book of Galatians, all it did, and it did it perfectly, was not to impart spiritual life, but to point out our sin and demonstrate our spiritual death. It was like a school teacher, Paul says. And so that old covenant has been replaced with a new covenant, with better promises. It's different, it's new, it's better. And that word covenant, by the way, does speak to an agreement, but it's not an agreement between equals. God does not make equal covenants with men. God is not the same as men. God makes a covenant and presents it, and we either accept it or reject it. But it's not a negotiation. It's a new covenant in the sense of quality, something that didn't exist before. But notice this, and this is important in verse 8. He said, and now he's quoting Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. With who? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so the covenant is made with Israel and with Judah. You never read of God making a covenant with non-Jewish people called Gentiles. The covenant's not made with the church. It's made with the same people that the old covenant is made with. It replaces it. In fact, Romans chapter 9 confirms this when speaking about Israel. It says, Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants? You say, well, what about us then? That word covenant appears so much in our New Testament. What about us? If God is making these covenant commitments to Israel and to Judah, does that mean that there's a future for Israel and Judah? Yes, it does, because God never breaks his word. And the fulfillment in its totality of these promises is yet to take place and will take place in all their fullness with that nation. And the basis of it is the same basis whereby we are spiritually blessed. It's the blood of Christ that has sealed that new covenant. And the blessings that will flow, and more than the blessings we can come into, that will flow nationally for Israel and for Judah, all flow out of that great sacrifice of Christ, which is the fountainhead for all our spiritual blessings as well. Some argue that the church is the new Israel and has just replaced Israel as the recipient of this new covenant. 
But that cannot be. Romans chapter 11 teaches us that, verse 17 down to verse 21. It says that the branches of unbelieving Israel were broken off so that the Gentiles might be grafted in. But then Paul goes on to say that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, all Israel will be saved. There is a future for Israel. And this is what he refers to in Jeremiah 31. This is my covenant with them, he says, when I take away their sins. And that's quoted in Romans 11, verse 27. Again, let me quote you. I think it's Kenneth Hoost again, who I obviously read a lot. Well, the New Testament is clear on the fact that the New Covenant has now been inaugurated. We hear all about inaugurations with uh, Donald Trump. But uh, the New Covenant has now been inaugurated. That is, that blessings belonging to the New Covenant are now being dispensed to all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is equally clear that the New Covenant promises are not yet fully realised. The promises in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel describe a people who have the law written in their hearts, who walk in the way of the Lord, who are fully under the control of the Holy Spirit. These same promises look to a people who are raised from the dead, enjoying the blessings of an eternal inheritance with God dwelling with them and in them forever. It's looking forward to that great millennial reign of Christ when that nation of Israel will enjoy all these promises. The writer goes on and says, only in the future will those blessings be granted in full and the complete transformation promised by the new covenant will be realised. That future can only take place with Jesus back on earth. So it will, in all their fullness. We look forward to a day because we're going to be part of the administration of that millennial reign of Christ. We look forward to a day when God's promises will be kept. They have to be kept. Can't, God can't just say, well, I made these promises to Abram, but you know what? They didn't do so well, so I'm just going to forget them and I'll make them with another group. But he can't do that. God would not be God. We could never trust anything he said if he just sets aside his word. But we're glad to say, according to the book of Romans in chapter 11, he has not set aside his word. And we who trust Christ and who have been the recipients of spiritual blessings from the same fountainhead of the death of Christ at Calvary. These spiritual blessings we receive have the same character as these covenant blessings that will be enjoyed in all their fullness nationally by Israel in that coming day. Because both are based on the same thing, the death of Christ and the shed precious blood of Christ. Verse number nine, he says this, this new covenant, it's not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. This covenant's not the same basis. He said, in those days, the Lord treated Israel like children. You know, you get to a stage when you come up to a... None of my children are here, so I can say this, and they never listen to this anyway, so they'll not know. Um, you know, you come up to, you come up to a, a, a road to cross. There is a stage when your children are not so keen for you to take them by the hand to cross the road. I don't know if you've reached that stage yet, if you're comfortable with that or not, but there gets that stage that you move, you know, children grow beyond that. And so God's saying, in those early days, Israel was like a child, and God took them by the hand. And it says he, he led them, you see, it was the early days of them as a nation, he led them out of Egypt 
It's what he says. Well, of course, in a future day, he's not going to deal with them as children. In a future day, they're not going to be led by the hand. In a future day, in that millennial reign of Christ, they won't need to be taught, in verse number 11, every man his neighbour and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. They won't need to be taught that. Why? Because it says, all shall know me from the least to the greatest. They won't need, in verse number 10, to have external instruction about the law of God as they do now. He says, I'll put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God. They shall be to me a people. And that blessing of complete cleansing from sin and iniquity will be their portion as well. Better promises. Jim Flanagan is very good in this in his, what the Bible teaches, commentary on Hebrews. It's worth a read. And he says there are um, seven full promises which are better promises here. I will put the laws into their mind, number one. I will write them in their hearts, number two. I will be to them a God, number three. Four, they shall be to me a people. Number five, all shall know me. Number six, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Number seven, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That's a wonderful thing. It goes all from being external to being internal. But you know, we, we really ought to be in the good of that now as those who have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus with the Spirit of God within. And when you come to this, we do see our blessings in these better promises. Our sins and iniquities have been remembered no more. We have the divine instructor within us, the Spirit of God. We have a wonderful relationship with the Lord. No one should have to teach us know the Lord we should all know him from the least to the greatest. And what will be true of Israel in a coming day should be true of us in our day. And it was so different than what the Jews knew. There was a hierarchy within that nation of people who could get to know God. That should not be the case amongst us from the least to the greatest. All indwelt with the same spirit of God. All with the same opportunity to know God from the least to the greatest. So he says in verse 13, just to finish up, he says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's saying to them, don't be fixated with the old. Don't go back to the old. But learn from the old. Because the old is there to instruct us about the new. And that's where we come as New Testament Christians to the Old Testament. You see, what use is it reading about history and reading about tabernacle and some of it's really hard going? Well, these scriptures are there for our instruction that we can learn from the shadow and the type and the picture and we can learn about the true which is heavenly and spiritual in our day. In the Old Testament, God treated them as children. He taught them by object lessons. Everything was physical. In the New Testament, it's really beyond that. Not so many object lessons around us today. And he's treating us in a different way. Trust that God will bless just that meditation. Let's just pray.